You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. A few housekeeping items first that I want to go over. Everyone's on mute. And please ask questions using that questions pane in your toolbar. You can find it sort of towards the bottom in the gray bar. Um, Please, we definitely encourage you to ask questions. And we will see them if you pose them right there in that, that box, which we will monitor. And as always, a recording and a copy of the slides will be sent in the post-webinar email. Usually we send it later today or maybe tomorrow morning. So hi, I'm Michelle Kamaya with Bolton. I'm the compliance leader here at Bolton. And I have a guest today. His name's not on the screen, nor is his picture. Um, lucky him. But he's my special guest. And he brings some unique expertise to the call. And also, he's my colleague. He works at IMA. Craig, could you tell us just a little bit about your background and what you do um, here at IMA? Yes, thank you. So my name is Craig Truitt. I am an employee benefits attorney for IMA. I've been with IMA for about three years now. Uh, So I help our clients and our compliance team with a variety of legal issues related to their employee benefit plans. Um, And before I came to IMA, I actually worked at a law firm practicing mostly in the area of employment law. So I'm also kind of able to lend some of that expertise to some of the HR issues that our clients are facing, um, especially in the last few years, we've really seen those lines between benefits and employment laws start to get blurrier and blurrier. So um, I try to help with that as much as I can as well. And we appreciate that, Craig. <laughs> so I'm really happy because now our audience has this has Craig on the call. And what that really means for you is you can pose a more broader scope of questions because my expertise really is around benefits or group benefits and anything touches group benefits. But Craig, with his employment law background, um, has a some great expertise to lend as well. So feel free to ask Craig all the hard questions. So as far as what we do on a daily basis, I think Craig, Craig gave you a little bit about that. You know, what we do is we work with employers on a daily basis. So we get to see and hear and brainstorm and help guide employers as they're working on some of these compliance topics. Um, We're having practical discussions with employers. It's not just uh, talking legalese, if you will. We don't give legal advice. Although Craig is an attorney, he's not your attorney, of course, and he cannot represent you in a court of law. And so that gives us a little bit of leeway, right? We can have these practical discussions. We can talk about what the risk is. If you were to be non-compliant, we can talk about what your business goals are and, and how those goals might interfere with some compliance issues. 
as always, I like to remind everyone that what we talk about today could very well change in light of this environment that we're in. There are a lot of emerging ordinances, um, new legislation being passed, new rulings from SCOTUS. So just be diligent on your updates. So the goal today is a little bit different than prior discussions. So the goal today is, is the same. We want to help you as the employer or acting as the employer. We want you to help address and solve your compliance concerns and issues. So Ask Michelle is new. So this is Kamayo's compliance talk. So it's what you're used to, but now we're calling it Ask Michelle. And we created this to answer your specific questions. We, we want to answer the questions that are most meaningful to our audience members. So now with this new half hour format, what we're doing is starting with a few updates, and then we're going to spend the rest of the time answering your questions. And you can submit your questions in advance. If you're uh, Working throughout the month and you run into something, you can shoot me over a quick email at askmichelle at boltonco.com. So you see it on the screen. You shoot me over a quick email. And then during my next webinar, I will address and answer your question. So please feel free to utilize that. Everyone on the line right now is more than welcome to email me throughout the month. And I will put your question in the queue for the next webinar, which runs monthly. Is also a podcast. Kamayo's Compliance Talk has always been a podcast, um, but we are now kind of structuring that these podcast series or episodes will be available on Tuesday after the webinar. So today is Thursday, and then on Tuesday, the new episode will drop on Apple Podcasts. You just open up your Apple Podcasts. And then type in Kamayo's Compliance Talk, and you'll see already see past episodes in there. Well, let's get into it. The one of the things I like to do is if I find things that I think are interesting, well, what I think are going to be interesting to you as the audience, I like to share them. And you all know that I have had many guest speakers from Fisher Phillips on the podcast and uh, Nicole Cam and Hannah Swise and others. They've been such a great partner and really they've been great for employers throughout COVID. So I still use them as a resource. And they recently did a flash survey. Some of you may have gotten their email already where they did this flash survey and they polled employers about what steps they're taking to reduce inflationary concerns. And this went hand in hand with a conversation that I had this week with my own internal team. We had brokers in a room and they were telling me, you know, our, our uh, HR professionals are asking us, you know, what ways can we boost retention or boost recruitment as far as employees? So I thought, oh, this topic must be important. Uh, you know, what can you do or, or, also, just as important, what are other employers doing? So you can see here out of 625 or more than 625 employers across the U.S., this is what they said they were doing to um, pro take proactive steps to reduce inflationary concerns among their workers. 30% of those employers said we're giving 
and cost of living increases, permitting employees to work from home, increasing mental health resources. Mental health has been a big, big topic ever since COVID started, and I, I think it's um, well-deserved to, to get some attention. So it's fantastic. And then the other one that's a big one is offering financial wellness programs and training. I personally, this one, I love just my own personal philosophy. I think this is so great. And there are some vendors out there. Like MetLife has a program called RetireWise, and they will um, host webinars and come on site if you have a certain amount of people signed up for the meeting. And they, it is free. They don't even charge for that type of financial wellness. So it's kind of cool. I like that too. And maybe you'll find this interesting as well. And if you want to see the full Fisher Phillips article, I have included the link there. And the slides are attached on the handouts bar. So if you go to that handouts bar, you can download a copy of the slides now if you'd like. Oh, very cool. Someone was telling me that they uh, they have some financial education benefits. So you might be one of those 21% of the employers who were told uh, about what they're doing. Such, such a great idea. That was food for thought, and now we're really just moving over into compliance chatter. And the chatter is what we've heard, what Craig and I have heard in the past month, what, what seems to be most relevant in the compliance space right now. And uh, I think the Dobbs decision has obviously caused quite a disruption, and we had many employers who were um, reading the news, following the news, and some employers reached out to us saying, how do we increase abortion services? And the answer really is expanding travel benefits. And Craig, I know you've done some work, and we've both seen a lot of employers considering this, but not many actually implementing anything just yet. And I'm sure that's due to the uncertainty. Of, um, of of what's going on in, in different states. But Craig, could you run us through um, a few a few examples of what you've seen lately? Yeah, absolutely. So again, I mean, this is this has been something like Michelle said that that we've had a lot of clients ask about. They're thinking about it, but not many, at least that I'm aware of, have have actually pulled the trigger. But we did have one that I know of that has actually moved forward with expanding their travel benefits. Uh, this was a large multi-state employer. Um, they had a self-funded health plan and their health plan already had some travel benefits, but it was specific to a certain subset of covered services. But after the Dobbs decision, uh, they wanted to take a strong stance and, and make something available so that their employees living in states where abortion is, is no longer available could travel to other states and, and have that covered. So what they did was expand the language in their plan to cover travel when it's for any covered services under the plan that aren't available in their state because of laws or regulations there. Uh, they did have some limits on the amounts of travel expenses they'll reimburse, and I believe they have a, a lifetime limit on those travel benefits too. 
the good news is their TPA was able to support that change and is going to be able to administer the reimbursements. So that group, at least, is is moving full steam ahead on this. Uh, but we've talked a lot about the, the different legal issues that are involved with, with these types of benefits, uh, but just the one, I think, area in particular that is still not totally clear is is these state laws that either make forming or receiving abortions a criminal issue or states like Texas and Oklahoma that have called private attorney general laws or, or bounty hunter laws that allow private citizens to bring civil lawsuits against individuals who aid and abet abortions or who are in some way facilitating access to abortions that would other, otherwise be illegal in those states. And, and at this point, we just don't know yet how broadly courts are going to allow those laws to be enforced. Um, and it's still not totally clear yet how ERISA preemption is going to apply when it's related to a state's criminal law as opposed to just a, a state benefit law. So if this is something that you're considering, it's it's definitely an area where you'll want to work with your legal counsel uh, and then make sure you're keeping an eye out for more updates from Bolton and IMA as, as we get more guidance on this from courts and, and from legislators. So I heard, all right, Craig, I heard this. I'm just like fascinated, although it may not be directly impacting a group health plan, or maybe it is, but let me ask you this. On the bounty hunter laws, where you mentioned the private citizen can sue, who can they sue? Can they sue the individual, the employer, the group health plan, the provider? Can you give me a little bit of insight into that? Definitely. So at least in, it depends on the, the, wording of the specific state laws, but at least in Texas, for example, which is extremely broad, it basically says that any individual can sue any anybody, whether it's a, a person or a corporation who aids or abets uh, a, an, an unlawful abortion. Um, and so the way Texas has structured things, at least on the face of the law, it would seem to allow private citizens to sue a company who is is offering to help their employees get abortions that would would otherwise be unlawful um, potentially even in other states and so that that's kind of where we just don't know yet exactly how broadly courts are going to let individuals take those lawsuits if it's if it's only going to apply to abortions that are performed in Texas, or if it could truly be used to bring a lawsuit against somebody who facilitates going out of state for an abortion that would have been illegal if it was performed in Texas, we just don't quite know yet. But at least on their face, some of these laws are extremely broad in terms of what they potentially allow. Yeah, got it. Okay, well. I mean, yes, if you're an employer, a, a, a state law like Texas has, and you have employees in Texas, I can I can certainly see the, the fear in that uncertainty. I mean, it sounds scary just as a normal, you know, person walking around. You don't want to be uh, threatened by lawsuits. So 
I, I, you know, we're kind of starting to see why are employers waiting to take take action on expanding travel benefits, and it, it it's making complete sense. There's just so much uncertainty, and with that uncertainty comes this this um, fear of risk, and what that risk may be also plays a factor into it as well. So thank you, and I should say that when you have a self-funded health insurance program, the example on the screen is what we're seeing being talked about most often. Now, if you have a fully insured health plan at your organization and that health plan is written or was written in the state of California, California has its own insurance mandate that requires abortion services to be covered. And we do not see that changing, uh, not, at least not in the foreseeable future. And in fact, California legislation has taken up a bill to strengthen that insurance statute. So if you're a fully insured health plan, your plan was written in the state of California, abortion services are covered and will continue to be covered unless something very surprising happens, which we'll keep you updated on that. Right, we have a question. So the a question really goes back to, or ties in a little bit with our last slide showing the Fisher-Phillips flash survey. So we were talking about uh, one of the the items that employers were doing, or one of the initiatives was allowing employees to work from home, to having a lot more flexibility there, to save on expenses. And the question is, are employers required to pay or reimburse employees for their data expense if working from home? And if so, and the employee is hybrid, do employers have to pay a portion of it? So I know a little bit here because I looked into this, uh, I was just curious when COVID started, I wanted to know, even though this is, this is definitely an HR like slash employment area and the IRS as well. Um, I, I know that within certain parameters, the employer has to reimburse for items that the employee needs to work from home. But I've never seen data, and I assume you mean internet, I've never seen that being one of the reimbursable expenses or being required to be reimbursed. Uh, but Craig, have you ever, do you have any experience in that arena? A little bit. Um, it, it definitely depends on the type of position, uh, the, the type of work that they're doing, and the, the states that you're in as well. Uh, different states have different wage and hour rules in terms of what expenses they consider to be uh, incurred as a necessary part of the employee's work. Uh, sometimes you're, if you have clear policies about what you are and aren't going to reimburse for, you can have a little bit more leeway on those. So um, these types of issues are very fact dependent. And so certainly something worth talking to an employment lawyer about. But um, unfortunately, like a lot of these legal questions, the answer is it depends, but um, maybe. And, and sometimes it ends up being more of a business decision if, if you are allowing employees to work from home, but it's not required, then you may have, uh, you, you may not have as much obligation to pay for that kind of stuff. But um, if it's a fully remote position where the employee doesn't have the option of coming in and, and getting those 
services or expenses at the office for free, uh, then you may have to look at that a little bit more. So again, this th that kind of wage and hour question gets very fact specific and can sometimes even, the answer can vary from one employee to the next within the same company, depending on what their job is and what policies apply to them as well. Okay, so that's good information to know that it's not a simple yes or no, it's, and clear policies on the matter are important as well, and it just sounds like to answer that question, you definitely want to connect with your legal counsel to ensure that you're not running afoul of any state laws or maybe definitely state laws. I wouldn't think there are any local municipality laws around that, but yes, consult a lawyer because it's, it's you may not have to. And if that helps you, then that would be well worth the expense of, of an attorney's time. We had another comment come in about recruitment strategies and referral programs. <clears throat> yes, we actually have that one at IMA and at Bolton. Um, so I, I agree that that's a really great way. Um, you know, this one, your example was a bonus to the employee who referred the person after six months. I like that idea too. And I know a lot of, I, I know several employers that have one of a referral program like that, and Bolson's one of them. A link to the, the Fisher and Phillips survey was actually on that slide, at the bottom of that slide. So if you download the PowerPoint, you can click on the hyperlink there. And then when you go to the article, Fisher Phillips gives you access to the full survey, but they also do a lot of highlighting, so you don't have to read through it all if you don't want to. But yes, that flash survey, the link is at the bottom of that slide, and you can download the slide right now in the handout, handouts toolbar. So back to the Dobbs decision, I just want to kind of tie a bow on this. I know we talked about it. It was, it was all we talked about, I feel like, for a couple of weeks because it was very relevant and uh, to our employers, they wanted to know, they wanted to at least educate themselves on how this would impact their benefits program. I, I, I have not seen anyone um, here as far as at Bolton, I haven't heard of any formal programs that an employer has created to expand travel benefits. Um, but feel free to comment if you'd like and, and let us know what your organization has done, if anything. We're happy to share that information. We'll move on to more compliance chatter. California LTC tax on the horizon, question mark. And I apologize, I'm going to start going very fast so we can get to your questions. Uh, I had someone come to me the other day and say, I heard the tax is going to be 6% or it was 5%. And I said, whoa, California SDI, which is statutory disability, that's not even 5%. That's only 1.1% up to a, up to a certain salary amount. Um, so I thought, oh, wow, could that be true? So I went digging to see what I could find. And right now, I don't know how anyone got a figure on the tax amount because right now it's in the early stages. So California developed a, a long-term insurance task force because they heard what Washington was doing, even though their tax is delayed. And California said, you know, hey, we want to get in on this too. And likely we'll see New York too. Um, so I do think the California LTC tax and the program itself is on the horizon. I think it's very good possibility. But I can tell you that the task force has a deadline of the end of this year to submit a report 
to uh, the California governor, the commissioner, and the legislators. And then they have a whole year to mull that over and then get together some numbers. So if we do see a California LTC tax and uh, subsequent program and benefits, I believe we're still two years out from that, maybe even three, just based on the deadlines that the, the task force has. And I also do not think that it will be as high as 5%. I don't think that they could even get that passed. Um, to give you an idea, Washington's LTC tax is 0.58%, so a little more than half a percent. Uh, so it seems un unrealistic to think or to see it be 5%. I, they would make a lot of people unhappy. And I know the legislators, do, they, they don't want to do that. They want to make this a program that people value. And LOA administration has been a hot topic amongst those that have been working with employers recently. You now that's leave of absence administration. We even found, we had a, a broker at Bolton find a leave administrator um, and they, they could even file the paperwork for state disability and state programs on an employee's behalf. That was part of their service. So not only do they help an organization keep track of all the myriad of paid leaves and, uh, and state disabilities and all of that, but they also can help the employee file. Which I thought that was really cool. That's a very high touch. It's a vendor called Sparrow, if you're interested. Speaking of uh, speaking of administering uh, leave of absences, Craig, can you tell us about this new Colorado paid family medical leave? Yeah, definitely. This is this is causing a lot of stress in in Colorado right now, and not just here, but uh, for employers that have employees in Colorado as well. So, if you aren't familiar with this, this is a new uh, state paid family and medical leave program. It was passed, I believe, at the end of 2020. Um, it's set to start paying benefits in 2024, uh, but the premiums, which are going to come out of both the, are going to be shared between employers and employees in a lot of cases, those are set to start at the beginning of 2023. Um, so I, we, I know we don't have time to get into all the details on the program today. So I did include a link in our slides to a webinar that our IMA compliance team did a while back that has a lot more information on the program overall. But um, for those of you who've been paying attention to this, there, there has been one update in the last couple weeks that we wanted to call to your attention. So uh, the Colorado PFML program allows private employers to opt out of the state's insurance program if they adopt a private plan that has all of the same rights and benefits and doesn't impose any greater costs on employees. Um, but at least as of right now, with premiums set to start at the beginning of next year, there just hasn't been much time for employers to make that decision and, and decide if they want to get a private plan lined up uh, because the state hasn't released any rules yet getting into the details on what that private plan process looks like. And so because of that, we have 
carriers here that have announced they intend to offer some sort of, of PFML plan for their clients, uh, but most of them haven't given any details or haven't started to be able to offer any quotes on that because we still just don't have these regulations from the state. And so that's creating a lot of angst for employers right now with uh, open enrollments not that far away and very shrinking window to get one of these private plans signed up. So the good news is just a couple weeks ago, the states did announce that they're still working on these private plan rules. They're very aware that the timeline is getting extremely tight for employers who are interested in opting out. And so they still haven't released anything formal, but they have at least indicated that they're expecting to include in these private plan rules some type of option to give employers a little bit more time on this. So they mentioned either phasing in the, the premium requirements, so in, in a sense, pushing out that deadline altogether, or at least giving the employers the option to start paying premiums on 1123. But then if they decide to adopt a private plan after that, they could change their mind, do that, opt out of the program and get a refund on the premiums that they had paid to the state thus far. So uh, it's not the level so, of detail that we're hoping, but it's at least a, a little <laughs> bit of relief, hopefully. Let's hope. Let's hope. And, and I want to point out the third bullet point. This applies to employers with at least one employee in Colorado. That's going to be a lot of employers, and I have a feeling several of the employers on the line um, that will also pertain to them. So thank you for that update. Really appreciate it, and we will keep everyone um, in the loop if they do decide to delay that in some form or fashion. Yes, definitely. They've, they've said that they expect to release those private plan rules by the end of July. Obviously, that's almost here. So we're hoping we have those rules maybe even in the next couple of days. And once we do, we'll definitely be putting out an alert with some more details. And I'm sure we'll start to see the carriers react very quickly at that point also. Okay, good. All right, so I'm going to move on to a question that was submitted beforehand by an audience member. So someone sent me a question about Fical OSHA. Uh, the new definition of close contact. So uh, the question was, this for this particular employer, it greatly impacts how their company responds to a COVID case in the workplace because they have this very large shared space that do not have cubicle walls that go from floor to ceiling. So it's a very large indoor space. So she's saying, given how an office is designed, this could increase close contact from a handful of folks to hundreds that are impacted by this new definition of close contact. So not what anyone wanted to, to know or to learn. It, it is, it's adding another level of uncertainty because now it's not that six feet to 15 minute rule. There is no, the six feet is gone now. So if you're in this large indoor space and you had a COVID case and someone was 10 plus feet away, now you have to decide, should they be considered a close contact? Uh, I went to Fisher Phillips, who, you know, and their employment law attorney 
they deal with this day in and day out. And I said, what is your interpretation? What are you guiding your clients to do? And I put the answer in writing here because I think it would be helpful to reference it later. But essentially, the, the clarification that they gave, they released some facts that the CDPH, which is, which is the California Public, Department of Public Health, they released some facts, but the facts weren't that clear. I went through them and I thought, well, okay, this doesn't tell me much. So Fisher Phillips agreed. Yes, the clarification isn't entirely helpful or clear. Um, right now, the most conservative approach is to consider all the employees in this space as a close close contact, which, I mean, that could be, if you've got a large room with a bunch of half cubicles, that could be 40, 50, 60 people, who knows? So you would consider them all close contact if you wanted to take a conservative route. But it, it's really not clear what the ETS is requiring. And, and they're saying that what you need to do is make the determination of a close contact after you learn of each COVID-19 case and determine who to call a close contact based on proximity. So I know that's not much clearer than mud, but I at least wanted to give you an attorney's perspective and I have it in writing there and I linked the facts as well. So feel free to download the slides there and you will have access to that. And then we have three questions that were submitted beforehand through Ask Michelle at BolsingCo.com. Uh, the first one, Craig is going to take here. So we have, the question is, we have an employee that's been on medical leave for over six months. Are we allowed to terminate their benefits? And if so, would we offer COBRA? Yeah, so this is a, a pretty common question, actually. And, and these issues, I know, always seem to be tricky for employers. A lot of times this, this stuff is tough because you don't always know at the start of someone's medical leave, how long they're going to be out. The, the employee might be expecting it to be a short-term issue, but then things drag out and the employer wants to be flexible with the employee and they want to be generous about the benefits. Employers always feel bad shifting somebody to COBRA while they're dealing with a, a medical situation and, and know that they are going to need that coverage. But uh, so a lot of times you end up in these situations where the next thing you know, you've got someone who's stayed on your plan longer than they should have. So uh, the short answer here is that it depends on the, the terms of your specific benefit plans. And those definitely vary from one employer to the next, uh, sometimes even one benefit to the next. You might have different eligibility rules for your medical plan compared to some of your ancillary benefits. But uh, generally speaking, when someone's on FMLA leave or even some leaves under state law, their group health benefits are protected by law, although the employee is still responsible for keeping up with their share of the premiums. But FMLA is only 12 weeks typically. So when you're talking about somebody that has been on leave for over six months, FMLA is, is going to be exhausted at that point. So uh, their benefits are not protected anymore by law if the employee hasn't returned to a full-time position at that point. Uh, and so in a lot of cases, that means the employee's active coverage probably should have ended at the end of the month when FMLA was exhausted. Uh, but there are a couple of situations where the employee might be able to stay eligible for just a bit longer than that. So for example, 
if the employer uses the ACA's look back methods and that employee is in a full-time stability period, then the employee would remain eligible, at least for the, the medical plan, for the rest of that stability period, even if other benefits need to be moved to COBRA. Uh, a lot of plans also have an approved leave of absence provision in their eligibility terms that gives the employer the ability to let them stay on active coverage. Um, a lot of times those are just limited to another month or two after FMLA is exhausted, but sometimes they're longer or it's just up to the employer's discretion. So really the key here is to be sure you are very familiar with the terms of each of your plans. And if that employee who's on leave is is not hasn't returned to a full-time position or, or to a position that would normally make them eligible for benefits, uh, you definitely want to be sure to move those employees over to COBRA at the right time. And, and this issue really does create real risk for employers if you're not following those terms of your plan. Because if, if somebody who's on one of these leaves becomes a high-cost claimant and you get the, the insurance carrier or the stop-loss carrier starts to dig into their eligibility a little bit and they find out that they haven't been working full-time hours in six months and, and should have moved to COBRA previously, then you run the risk of the, the carrier or stop-loss not covering those claims. So this is, is a very important issue that I think a lot of employers lose sight of sometimes that and it's right yeah i agree i'm glad you said that yeah they're they're trying to be generous they they want to help the employee but they don't realize that once you get outside of the eligibility terms that your plan allows you open up the possibility that your carrier's not going to cover those claims and so it's extremely important to make sure you're shifting those employees over to COBRA as soon as they don't meet the eligibility terms of your plan. Yes, I'm, I'm glad you said that. That's really what it is. It's like you want, as an employer, you want to be more generous and you want to, you want to, uh, you know, show emotion and humanity and say, oh, I know you're going through a tough time. Let's just keep you on benefits, on active benefits, I should say. And right. yes, that can definitely pose a problem. I'm sure every one of us know a situation where someone was active on benefits, even though they'd been out on leave for maybe even a year or more. And certainly a benefit plan contract is, is probably not going to be as flexible to let you keep them on the active benefits for that for, for much longer than six months. So good to keep in mind. I do want to do a time check. It is 1040. Um, we want this to be about 30 minutes. I understand if you need to drop off the line, feel free to do that because we'll have a copy of the recording. And actually, it's probably better to listen to the podcast so, because some of uh, it will shorten and length uh, once it's posted as a podcast episode. So feel free to drop if you need to um, because you'll be able to hear a recording after. But we're going to go ahead and move on to the next one where um, – Having employees relocate to other states, which is happening without, you know, a lot of people don't know in the organization when an employee moves sometimes during this uh, this 
new era that we have with COVID and working from home. So Craig is going to walk us through, you know, just high level, what, what should be considered when that happens. Yes, I will definitely keep it high level because there is a ton of things to consider here. And, and this, this came up a lot during the pandemic. People, companies started allowing people to work from home. And then after a few months of the pandemic, they realized this is probably something that employees could do from home permanently. And so they ended up with a lot more remote workers than they've ever had before. And then those employees figure, well, I'm just doing my job from home. So what's the difference if I live in California or Texas or wherever? And so they move. A lot of times they don't tell the employer and the employer's finding out after the fact that they've got a much more multi-state workforce than they ever intended or, or even realized. And so there are a variety of rules for each state and, and even times at the city or county level as well that's, that businesses have to think about here. Uh, all of those rules a lot of times have different thresholds for when they apply. So sometimes it's based on the number of employees that the company has in the state. Um, other times they're based on the length of time that the employee is working there. So you might have different rules for an employee that has moved somewhere permanently versus somebody that's got a Airbnb in the mountains for a couple months and, and is just there temporarily. And so the requirements here can, can definitely vary. And, and sometimes the issues aren't even related to HR or benefit stuff. For example, there, there might be uh, registration or licensing requirements for your company to operate in that state. And again, the states have very different definitions about what is considered operating in the states. So in some cases, an employee just living there, but doing remote work that is focused on another state, that might not count. Other states, it, it might. Um, there's different tax rules also, both on the payroll tax side for the employee and just the business taxes that the employer has to pay if they're doing business in that state, they, they might have some additional tax reporting requirements. Uh, companies might also need to register for the state's unemployment system or their workers comp program as well. So a lot of this stuff is, is beyond just what the HR department would typically handle, but there's definitely a lot to consider on the HR side too. Um, Obviously, paid leave laws are a huge issue. California has a variety of its own paid leave laws and has, I know, for a while, but um, especially since the start of the pandemic, we've seen a ton of states start to pass their own paid leave rules and unpaid leave rules where you don't have to pay the employee when they're out, but you at least have to allow them to take that time off. Uh, the wage and hour requirements vary a ton on this and a lot of times in, in kind of subtle ways that you might not be used to thinking about. So certainly different minimum wage rules at the state and city level. There's different rules for counting compensable time. And, and like we talked about earlier, there are different rules for uh, what expenses need to be reimbursed. Uh, there's different rests and meal break requirements. Uh, and then especially for 
remote workers who a lot of times are in administrative type or exempt positions. Um, some states have different rules for what positions can be treated as exempt from overtime. So uh, certain job classifications that had been exempt in one state might not be eligible for that in the state where a new employee moves and all of a sudden that employee needs to be paid overtime when they're working more than 40 hours a week. So um, it might require additional tracking and, and reporting on, on that type of stuff too. So there's a number of other things too, state sexual harassment training, uh, pay transparency laws with requirements around disclosing pay ranges for positions, or even in Colorado, for example, if you've got a promotional opportunity that could potentially be performed by an employee in Colorado, you're supposed to notify those employees that that position has become available. Um, so a, a very messy patchwork of rules, depending on the states that you're in. And then along with all that stuff comes different posting and notice requirements also. So I know that's a ton to think about, and I'm sure there's things that I left out. So I would definitely recommend talking to an employment attorney that's familiar with the laws in, in all of those locations. Uh, but then Mineral is a great resource for this stuff too. They've got great information on the various HR laws in, in every state. And then just one last note on that, you might want to update your handbook and policies on remote work and relocations as well. Um, I know some employers have started to actually restrict which states employees are allowed to work from. Um, I don't think that's very common, but at a minimum, you at least want to make it clear to employees that they are required to notify you if they're going to be relocating to another state. And then be sure you're tracking where your remote employees are located and where they're going so that you can stay on top of all this stuff. Thanks, Craig. All right. And the last question we have that was posed to us is a question about taxation. So a lot about IRS rules here. Is it true that employees can't pay for their domestic partner premiums via a pre-tax deduction? And yes, that is true in general, unless the domestic partner qualifies as a Section 152 dependent. And for them to qualify as uh, the employee's dependent, um, it, it, it be, that domestic partner would have to rely on the, the employee uh, for 50% or more of support and other Section 152 roles. So it's not common that they would qualify as a dependent. And so because of that, most domestic partner premiums that the employee pays for uh, out of their paycheck or that the employer contributes on behalf of an employee, the amount that is attributable to the domestic partner uh, portion of the premium does need to be either a post-tax deduction or if the employer pays for it, it needs to be imputed income. The reason why is, is simpler than the actual um, action you need to take. The reason why is that the IRS does not recognize domestic partners, whether they're registered or not, the IRS doesn't recognize them as tax dependents like they would recognize a spouse. 
Of course, the only exception is if they are Section 152 dependents. That would be the only exception. And um, this has been around forever. And this would, let's say you're an employer and you have domestic partners enrolled in your plan, but you are taking pre-tax deductions from the employee and you're not properly taxing the domestic partners. The risk of that is if it, you were if you were to undergo a payroll audit, if the IRS were to come in and they uncovered this, then the IRS is is going to say, okay, well you you owe us money on these taxes you should have been paying us because domestic partners aren't qualified uh, tax dependents, and then you would go through you would have to go through that audit and obtain records so the IRS knows how much you would owe them, and that doesn't sound fun. So I just wanted to make sure that you know that, that there is a proper way to handle domestic partner premiums, and it's all about the IRS rules. Unfortunately, the IRS, or maybe fortunately too, I mean, pre-tax premiums are pretty cool. The IRS has a lot to say, and they have a lot of regulations and rules for employers to follow when it comes to pre-taxation. So that is it for us today. We ran a little bit longer, so we will try harder next time. That's to run as long. If you have any questions that didn't come to you immediately or that you didn't submit, feel free to just email me at askmichelle at boltingco.com. I put a few resources on the screen, as always. If you wanted to learn more about that Colorado paid family leave, there's the webinar link, um, the Bolton blog. And then Mineral for Bolton clients, you have access to Mineral, and they're a great resource too. And then the email address is askmichelle at boltonco.com. If you email me at any time throughout the month, I'll put your question in the queue, and we will answer it on air uh, during the monthly webinar. And then it'll be a podcast. So if you didn't catch it all, you can download this podcast episode on Tuesday. Craig, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. It was great to join. Yeah, it's good. All right. Bye, everyone. See you next time.